So this past month, we have been talking about doubt. We've been talking about what it means to have faith, what it means to have doubt, how doubt is a part of our life experiences. And I think it's rather obvious, but it's worth saying, the underlying assumption behind this whole sermon series is this cultural assumption that we have. We've all heard it, this idea that doubt and faith, it's like a, um, like, uh, they're taking my picture, it's making me nervous, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> what paparazzi, that's the term. Um, this idea that doubt and faith are mutually exclusive. We've all heard this, right? When I was in high school, I told the story at Sacred Reading Group, but I had this huge crush on this evangelical guy. And being the dork that I was, I wasn't attracted to him because of his good looks or his artistic ability. I was into his knowledge about the Bible. How it could ever be that I'm surprised in divinity school, I don't know. But in any case, he and I would spend hours talking about the Bible over lunch. And remember, I'm from Texas, so it wouldn't be wrong to say that he was a Bible thumper. And I went to a church where it was more likely that we would talk about astrophysics or the History Channel and the special that we saw on Friday night than it was for us to actually open the Bible. So opposites attract, right? And our conversations were really fun for a while. Um, but until one day he brought up some pa the passage from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's letters, where Paul writes that women should be silent in church and they should be subordinate to men. They should be subordinate to their husbands. And suddenly I couldn't find our debates so fun. This was not the same as speculating as to whether the, uh, the world was actually created in seven days or not. My mom, who is here tonight, is a minister. And I was starting to become aware of the patriarchy and the centuries of oppression that women have faced. And I was becoming aware that this, this oppression has been justified by lines just like that, lines and this, this text that I held sacred. And I knew, I knew I had to doubt the validity of those passages and I had to doubt them vehemently. I could not just accept their authority. But I didn't have the, t the vocabulary for it at the time to express just what I thought was wrong. I couldn't say how to oppose that position. So then he quoted another uh, biblical passage to me, this one from the book of Revelation. It reads, you are neither cold nor hot, but I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's a quote attributed to Jesus talking to a church um, in Lysidia, I believe it is. And so he told me I was a lukewarm Christian because I could not accept this passage. He told me there was no place in Christianity for people like me, people who questioned the Bible's authority. Thinking he had me beat, he said, just give it time, pray that God will open the scriptures to you, you'll see the truth. Well, that was the end of that crush. <laughs> and it could have been the, the beginning of the, of the end of my attempt to live the Christian faith. But as I've come to learn more about the Bible, about the theology, about the lives of saints and persons of great faith who've been examples to Christians over the centuries, the more I see that, in a certain sense, my high school evangelical crush was right, but not in the way that he thought, not at all. The scriptures would be open to me in time, and what has been open to me is that faith does not require that we accept all these ancient propositions and doctrines, but that we are called to engage them thoughtfully and passionately, and that doubt is fundamental to this process. How so? Aristotle called philosophy the art of doubting well. Living the Christian life is also the art of doubting well. 
In fact, the formula for doubting well is given to us by the very central message of the Christian tradition. Resurrection, death, the end of all possibility, all movement, all change, all engagement, transformed into new life. As I understand it, this promise of death and resurrection is not only about this individual who was crucified and resurrected 2,000 years ago, nor is it about something that will happen to us after we die in some far off place and time. Resurrection is those things, but it's not only historical factual, it's not only eschatological, it's practical. It's about how we are to live and experience our lives right here, right now. In this sense, leading a religious or faithful life is not about having to believe these doctrines. Instead, religion is much more grounded and practical. It's about doing things that change you. Believing in resurrection is a way for us to change how we understand the things that happen to us, ourselves, how we understand those around us, so that we ourselves are changed. Christianity is practicing resurrection day after day. The Christian, the Christian teaching calls each of us to make resurrection real in our lives. And doubt is a fundamental piece of this process. But to make this real, to feel what this really feels like, we need to talk about how much doubt hurts sometimes. When we find ourselves in a state of doubt, especially the kind of generalized doubt, self-doubt, the doubt about the basic goodness or justice or truthfulness of meaningfulness of this world that Neil reminded us about at the very beginning of this series, when that is shaken for us, we, become, we might become paralyzed, we might feel lifeless, we might even feel dead. Or if we encounter a seemingly absurd, unjust, or wrong-headed doctrine, we may be tempted to pull away, to disengage. If we're the more confrontational type, we might be tempted to crush the relationship with the person who has that opinion, or to kill the institution that holds it. When these things happen, doubt itself can render us paradoxically dead while we're still alive. The feeling of deadness is due to doubt is not something that we can avoid. It's just a part of our life. Even those who we hold up as saints and the very most faithful, faithful have experienced this deadening form of doubt. Mother Teresa, it's a little cliche perhaps to mention her, but she's a great example for us to hold up, wrote in her private journals about her growing doubt and feeling of desolation and emptiness as she carried out the great work that we know that she did throughout her life in Calcutta. From her diary, she wrote, where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? It pains without ceasing, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me. I am afraid to, to explore them, I am afraid to uncover them. Is it blasphemy? If there be a God, she wrote, if there be a God, please forgive me. Often doubt feels like death, but it doesn't have to be that way. I did a little etymological research, Chicago education, thanks. Um, and the underlying stem for the word doubt is not uncertainty, it's not fear, it's not pain, it's actually nothing with a negative connotation. It's really neutral. The deepest etymological roots of the word doubt simply refer to two-ness, as in two minds, two options, two possibilities. In German, the connection between doubt and tunis is even more immediately clear. The word tu in German is zwi, and the word zweifel, if anyone knows that's right, is doubt. These things are linked. Tunis, doubt. And I think thinking about doubt on these terms changes the picture. 
no longer is doubt so stifling and enclosing, it's actually being in a state of having two or more options. It's kind of liberating. Perhaps it's even life-giving. But how do we get there? How do we move from feeling the deadening power of doubt? Hey, Sergio. How do we move from the deadening power of doubt into making it something that can bring us resurrection in our daily lives? Doubt in its deathly form often comes upon us after something traumatic. For example, a period of extended singleness after trying to date on OkCupid. <laughs> or more seriously, maybe the death of a loved one, a diagnosis, being victim to systematic oppression, failure to achieve a dream. We've all been in these places. Sometimes this deadening doubt can even come after just an extended period of overwork, underappreciation, lack of progress, and lack of rest. We all feel this doubt, and it hurts. I've certainly been there. Mother Teresa has been there. We've all been there. This past summer, I worked as a hospital chaplain in a trauma recovery unit. What was most difficult for me about this work was my own struggle with doubt. Where is God when a 45-year-old father of three teenage kids is dying of brain cancer? Where is the goodness in a situation where a young woman in her 20s who is in perfect health is going to be paralyzed for life because she was in a car accident? Talking to and praying with these people in these situations made me doubt. The possibilities for hope and forward progress often felt foreclosed. I couldn't justify in my mind this abstract notion that I held of an all-powerful, all-loving God with the situations of people, of people who I was meeting and the situations they were facing. Theologian, theologians have long had a name for this dilemma, the dilemma that arises when we see evil in the world and we hold this notion of a loving, good God. They've called it theodicy. It's one of the most common fountains of doubt that we've faced as the human people. But I still think the Christian tradition is worth it. And I've had even some experiences in the hospital that opened my eyes to why. There was this one, he was a kid really, he was 19 years old, who spent the entire summer in the hospital recovering from a gunshot wound to the neck. For a week or so, I would walk past his room making my chaplaincy rounds, glance in and see that the lights were off. At first I was too timid to go in and risk waking him up but as time went on, I noticed he never had any visitors and the shades were always drawn. Eventually it became clear that I needed to go in and talk to him. It was a slow process to get to know him, but over the course of a few visits, we talked about how he had been shot accidentally by a friend who was targeting someone else, how the friendship had ended, how angry he was, how he didn't have a job to go back to, the list goes on. He was not close with his mother, he was angry, and worst of all, he was going to lose um, control of his legs due to the wound. But what was most troubling was all is that he was in such a state of doubt and in such a state of emotional and existential and spiritual pain that he didn't even have the energy or the desire to do the physical therapy that would be necessary for him to do what he needed to do to exit the hospital for any kind of recovery. He refused to be turned in bed for a week. Uh, for weeks, he refused to work with his physical therapist. And as we talked, doubt took hold of both of us. I found myself doubting on his behalf. How was he ever going to recover? What was he gonna do once he left this hospital? Who was going to take care of him? It felt like all the options were out. And as we sat in his dark room talking with the, the blind shut, the only light in the room coming off the flickering TV, I felt stifled. I felt lifeless, he did too. The, the room just closed in on us and it was really painful, it really hurt. And I was doubting God. 
which is a really uncomfortable feeling when you're wearing a name tag that says in bold print, chaplain. It's a big identity crisis in a lot of ways to have that going on when you have this label on your chest. But nonetheless, I was thinking, where is God in this, ho in this hospital room? I couldn't feel God. God didn't feel present. I was angry. I was sad. I was closed off. I didn't know what to do. I was in over my head. So I went to my supervisor eventually. It took me some time to find the uh, courage to do that. But I went to her. And I told her everything that was wrong, all the obstacles, all the roadblocks, all the challenges, and like a good chaplain. She listened patiently and calmly and wisely. And when I finally stopped talking, which took a long time because I was so overwhelmed, she said, you've listened to a situation. You've gone into the depths with him. That's the first step. You can't overcome something until you've identified it, until you've really, really looked at it. She was really good at giving affirmation before critique. Um, but then she told me, and this is the most important part, you can't just stay there in the depths. You've got to help him identify points of hope because they're there. Show him that he has options and start doing things right now to move in that direction. Her final words were, I think, the most important. It's time to interrupt the narrative of doubt and do something. From doubt to hope. That's basically the resurrection formula right there. We doubt by calling to mind that doubt shows us something wrong. It shows us something incomplete. It shows us something untrue. And so he and I were right to doubt in that hospital room. We were, we were right to lament and cry about how much the situation hurt, how terrible it was, how much it sucked, how unjust it was, about how unsure we were together in those moments about if God was real, if God was there, if God cared. We had to doubt those things. The fact was that these doubts signaled to us that something was really broken and something had to be done. But the only way, really he, he was the one who did this, this work ultimately, but the only way that we were, he and I were able to exit the space of doubt together um, was by recognizing that doubt, again, it's those etymological roots. It always implies two options. It always implies two-ness, two approaches. And the right response to doubt was to point in the direction of what is right. In a situation, in this situation, it meant pushing through and doing therapy. It meant calling his mom, trying to rectify the relationship. It actually even meant praying, which for me, when I was doubting God, and he was certainly doubting God, was not because we were sure God was there, but it was helpful. It was a thing that we could do together to change us. It's what we needed to do, and that was okay. At the end of the day, in the Christian life, doubt is not something to be avoided. It's actually something that should make us curious. It's something that should call us into deeper engagement, into deeper processing, and ultimately into action. We doubt well, as Aristotle has uh, told us to do, when we let doubt break us open. We doubt poorly when we let doubt close us off. I like this image that I'm about to say. It's a, it's a nice metaphor, I think. Um, but a seed needs to break open, right? It needs to be broken open for something to grow. And ultimately, when it comes to doubt, what matters is not overcoming it or avoiding it or hiding it. We can't overcome it forever. And we can't avoid it by committing ourselves dogmatically to some, to some particular belief or claim. We can't just stay where we are with these preconceived ideas that we think are going to apply at all times and all places. What we can do is step into that doubt. We can look at it deeply, stare it in the face, just look right at it, and see what our options are, see what is presented to us. And with these options, identify, it's very practical really, with these options, identify and aim ourselves towards what will draw us more closely into possibility, maybe into relationship, 
but ultimately what will draw us back into life, what will draw us back through this process of resurrection. Because the thing is, we can't anticipate what life is going to throw at us, we can't anticipate what's going to make us doubt, we can't make the world perfect, and we can't make people say crazy things that are gonna hurt us and make us want to doubt them and maybe even doubt an entire institution. We're gonna be faced with doubt for the rest of our lives. So when we're faced with it, it might be helpful to have some kind of process in mind, something that we can do, some steps. And so I'm gonna suggest three questions that we might work through um, when we're faced with doubt. And I think that it always begins with first, figuring out what's actually going on. What are my options here? Second, what does this mean? And how would it, what would it mean differently if I looked at it through a lens of resurrection? What would, it, what would happen? It's a little bit like positive thinking, but I think it's, I don't know, deeper than that, looking at things through a lens of resurrection. And finally, what actions can I take to move myself in this situation more towards life? How can I experience a little more resurrection in my own life? The best litmus test for if we're doubting well is if our doubt is drawing us closer into life and that it's not making us withdraw further from life. So looking back at my high school self, accepting that women should have been silent in church because Paul said so would surely have been a retreat away from life. It would have been a retreat away from myself and a retreat away from God. Contrary to what he told me in high school, my doubt of that part of the Bible was actually making me hot not lukewarm. It was drawing me into conversation and study with the Bible. It was drawing me into a passion for social justice. It was pulling me more towards life. Accepting that statement would have made me smaller. It would have made me withdraw. By doubting well, I saw that even though that statement was there in the Bible, there was always another option, another interpretation, another understanding. So ultimately, there are parts of this tradition that we should doubt. There are parts of this very tradition that we're trying to maybe figure out here in this church, this Root and Branch community, that have been used to undergird sexist, ethnocentric, and unjust attitudes. There are people who draw on this tradition to justify hateful actions. And life puts us into situations where we will doubt. Situations of pain, situations of uncertainty, situations of great obstacles. But when this happens, we should doubt as well. We should doubt that this is what life is going to be like forever. We should doubt that this is what is meant for us. We should doubt that pain, suffering, and death is all that there is. Let's boldly doubt those things and doubt with a particular intention in mind. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Philippians chapter four, verse eight. That's the verse, I, the verse that I wish I had memorized back in high school that I could have quoted right back at my crush. Because at the end of the day, my doubt was actually biblical. So what we're gonna do now is um, have some table discussions. And the questions that I have for you are um, two and they're pairs. And so the first is talk about a time or an experience that you had where doubt led you into a feeling of paralyzation, a feeling of death, when it kind of left you without feeling like you have any options. And then the second is a time when doubt actually drew you further into life, further into passion, and how, you, um, how that doubt was beneficial to you or to those around you, and what those two experiences were like for you.